Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, December 14th, 2022, the 693rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you'll be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast on a wide range of podcast platforms for free just a couple of days later. And of course, Rumble, by the way, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. All of the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch store can be found at linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's do a little Carrie Lake update, and then we'll talk a little bit of politics, and then we'll get into Twitter files part five, and we'll just see where it goes. So Carrie Lake and her attorneys and the judge and the lawyers for the communist defendants participated in a 
Zoom conference, an emergency meeting yesterday to schedule out what is going to happen in the Kerry Lake lawsuit that we covered on Monday. I watched some of it. It was actually terrible to watch because the feed just kept buffering, apparently because there were far too many people watching it. But rather than me telling you about it, Carrie Lake appeared on War Room yesterday. So here is her assessment, and she will lay out the calendar of events as they will unfold in this lawsuit. Well, um, it took about there was about a half an hour delay, maybe longer, Steve, because uh, there was so much interest in this case through both the telephonic uh, meeting part and then also the uh, online meeting that everyone just signed on, logged on to get on and watch this. And there was no room for the legal team and the defendants and well, the defendants didn't show up, but the legal team, I couldn't get on. My attorneys couldn't get on. So after about a half an hour of, you know, working things out, we were able to start the proceedings today. And it was a, a meeting to to figure out how the schedule will play out in this ever important election lawsuit against Katie Hobbs and Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and Stephen Richer. And it just tells you the whole world is watching and interested in what's happening here. They know how important getting honest elections are to saving this republic. Not just honest elections. This thing was stolen, right? And some, one of the wise guys, one of the wise guys on, on Twitter, oh, this is a coping mechanism. No, baby, this is not coping. We won this, and you see this information that obviously Katie Hobbs is illegitimate. She knows she's illegitimate. That's why they're dancing around this thing. They didn't want to show up today. They want well, to go in and get some judge and throw it out right away. Hobbs' ahead, attorney uh, said that she was there representing uh, Governor-elect Hobbs, and I, I had to hold back my out loud laughter when she said that. And, you know, this is what it's about. We are going to show the scale of fraud and um, malicious intent in this case. It's outrageous what they did, what they did to the good people of Arizona, how they perverted election day voting in the most hostile way possible. It's disgusting what they did. And we are looking forward to this case moving forward. It looks like they're going to try to push forward a, a motion to dismiss. That'll begin on Thursday. We will have, uh, I believe, let me look at the actual schedule real quick. Our response will come Saturday. Replies are due Sunday. Oral arguments on that Monday. And then we move forward to the trial next Tuesday and Wednesday. So there we have it. It looks like it's going to be a big Christmas week. Don't know if we're going to get a big Christmas present next week. Either way the case goes, both sides apparently expect that it will be appealed all the way up to the highest possible levels. So no matter what the judge's decision is next week, assuming we get one next week, and obviously that's not guaranteed, but whether he decides for Lake or for Hobbs and Richer and the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors and the Maricopa County Director of Elections, all of whom are just absolute diehard regime communist traitors. And hey, if you don't like when I say those sorts of things, just prove me wrong. They're stealing an election right out in the open, and they're trying to use different procedural mechanisms to get the case challenging their election theft thrown out. It's exactly what happened in 2020. They cheated in many of the same ways. And all of these people were part of that election theft, too. We don't actually need to be nice to them or take the idea that they might be 
faithful public servants executing their duties that their office demands seriously, because that is not a serious claim. So let's move on to some more regime communists. And of course, I'm talking about the Senate leaders of each party. Let's start with regime communist traitor Chuck Schumer. This is from Roll Call this morning. Schumer says he expects Omnibus to include electoral count overhaul. Legislation to close loopholes in the former electoral vote counting process will likely be appended to a must-pass appropriations package, Senate Majority Leader Charles E. Schumer said Tuesday. Supporters of President Trump sought to exploit those loopholes last year to keep him in power. You got that? So they are making up new laws to make sure that the old laws can't be followed, even though the old laws were not used in the way they're trying to change them so they can't be used. Mike Pence bailed out on that thing, but they're going to push ahead with the changes anyway, just in case he might not have. Speaking on the Senate floor, Schumer gave the clearest indication yet that the bill known as the Electoral Count Reform Act will be tacked on to the annual spending bill that lawmakers are rushing to finalize ahead of the holiday break. Oh, it's just a holiday break. It's not the fact that this Congress is leaving and a new Congress is replacing it. They are trying to get this done during the lame duck session because there is no way it can be done next year. They also can't pass the bill on its own. So they're trying to attach it to must pass legislation, this omnibus bill, the same thing that they're doing with their measure to enable media conglomerates to get together and form a cartel so that they can extract money from the social media sites where their content is hosted. But ultimately, it's so that they can control the speech of smaller independent media outlets. And that is being inserted into the National Defense Authorization Act, a must-pass piece of legislation. I expect an omnibus bill will contain priorities both sides want to see passed into law, including more funding for Ukraine and the Electoral Count Act, which my colleagues in the Rules Committee have done great work on, the New York Democrats said. And again, both sides, Democrats and Republicans. Now that paradigm is dead and those aren't the sides. So what Chuck Schumer is actually saying is, Establishment Republicans are totally on board with doing all of this stuff through these improper processes so that we get the results the regime demands before this Congress goes away and it becomes much harder. A few weeks ago, bill backing senators Amy Klobuchar and Joe Manchin said they hoped it would end up in the omnibus spending bill expectations that it could hitch a ride on another vehicle that Congress needs to move annually, the National Defense Authorization Act, died last week when the House passed their version without the Electoral Count Reform Act. Schumer indicated on Monday that the Senate would pass a one-week continuing resolution this week to extend government spending while appropriations negotiators finish their perennially late work. Dozens of civil rights and government watchdog groups have signed letters urging Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell to pass the law this year. Oh, the civil rights groups, the activists, all funded by globalists in the regime. 
as we have discussed too many times to count. Activists and government watchdogs. You just call yourself civil rights. You call yourself a watchdog. Oh, we're just making sure everything runs the right way. And then you get to totally abuse and work outside our actual system of government. No one will be accountable to the people for shoving this Electoral Count Reform Act into a must-pass spending bill, which isn't really must-pass. The bill is one of the most substantial legislative reactions to the ransacking of the Capitol on January 6th, 2021. Citing ambiguities in the Electoral Count Act of 1887, some of Trump's backers argued that objections to the electoral vote count that day would have allowed Vice President Mike Pence to set aside some state's results. Trump seized on those theories, urging backers to rally in Washington the morning of the count. Then they stormed the Capitol. The legislation would clarify that the vice president's role in counting electoral votes is purely ceremonial and that he does not have the discretion to set aside any state's properly certified votes. It would also raise the threshold to hear objections to a state's electors from just one member in each chamber to 20 percent of Congress. So they don't want the people of the country to be able to hear their representatives debate objections to the certified, in quotes, electors. These aren't properly certified electors. These are fraudulently certified electors. People went ahead with those certifications under pressure and duress, and they knew that the elections they were certifying did not comport with the laws governing elections in their states, and this whole process went ahead anyway. We were supposed to hear objections on the electors from six different states. It would have required two hours debate for each state objected to in each chamber of Congress. So there would have been 12 total hours of debate over the electors of the six states objected to. And instead, we got virtually none of that because of the very violent insurrection. And then they brought everything back into session later on at night. Once everyone had stopped paying attention, everyone was just disgusted with the rioting. The people most disgusted with the rioting were the people who supported rioting throughout 2020. But they don't care so much about principles. We got back. We got two total hours of debate in each chamber. And then they just went ahead. They just bypassed all of the rules about hearing the objections, and they went ahead with it anyway, while claiming that other people weren't following the rules. Supportive lawmakers say the bill must pass this year, given the GOP's takeover of the House. How about that? Roll call apparently does not care that the American people, in as much as these elections were legitimate at all, clearly voted against this exact sort of thing. So they're going to try to push it through during the last week before the holidays because it could never happen with the new Congress that was just elected. Do they care about the will of the people? Of course they don't. The House passed a different version of the bill in September with every Democrat voting in favor, but just nine Republicans. The bill, which the Senate Rules Committee reported out in October by a 14 to 1 vote, has broad support in the Senate. 
And of course it does. The rhino power is very, very strong there. Which brings us to chief rhino Mitch McConnell. This is from Fox News today. House GOP accuses McConnell of selling them out with year-long budget deal. The two top congressional Republicans are bitterly split on a year-long budget deal, with some allies of Kevin McCarthy even accusing Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell of selling them out. That's exactly what he's doing. That's why he's being accused. House Republicans say that McConnell should only agree to help Democrats fund the government until mid-January. The timeline would give Republicans more leverage in budget negotiations since the party is set to control the House of Representatives. And that is exactly right. Mitch McConnell is giving away one of the greatest powers the incoming House would have, the power of the purse. They're trying to fund the government for the next year so that the new House cannot weigh in. It is obvious what Senate rhinos led by Mitch McConnell, are doing. Republican voters fought hard to win back control of the House, to take away insane spending control from the Democrats, said Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mitch McConnell is on the verge of taking away House Republicans' power of the purse next year by making a dirty deal with the Democrats. House Minority Leader McCarthy, who is the GOP's designee for House Speaker, recently told Fox News that a lame duck budget deal would be wrong. Why would you want to work on anything if we don't have the gavel inside Congress? The California Republican told Laura Ingram on December 5th, wait until we're in charge. Another House Republican was less diplomatic, saying McConnell's help in passing a year-long budget deal amounted to a sellout. House and Senate appropriators on Tuesday reached a nearly $1.7 trillion budget deal to fund the government until the end of September. Lawmakers are likely to approve the budget deal next week, but will first need to pass a one-week government funding bill before Friday to avert a shutdown. And if I'm not mistaken, they were supposed to be going on recess after Friday. They weren't supposed to be in session next week. But hey, they have all these very important things they need to do during the lame duck session. During the holiday period, while people are paying less attention to the politics, they need to push all this stuff through because the new Congress that was just elected would never do any of it. This would seem to be an obvious violation of every possible constitutional and fiduciary duty. But of course, we all just simply accept this is how politics works. We have a framework that provides a path forward to enact an omnibus next week, said House Appropriations Committee Chairwoman Rosa DeLauro from Connecticut. Now, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Rosa DeLauro, L-A-U-R-O. If you are not, just search for images of her online. It is incredible. She looks like Perry Farrell, the singer from Jane's Addiction and Porno for Pyros, in a purple wig, wearing the worst clothes ever all the time. She is exactly what you would expect every communist activist who wore pink pussy hats for women's marches to look like when they are 75, as many of them make it there because obviously they're all heavily vaccinated. While the full budget has yet to be released, it is likely to include billions in funding for the pet projects of lawmakers via congressional earmarks. 
The Senate alone is slated to include more than 3,000 earmarks within the budget, while the House will get more than 4,300. The budget will require at least 10 GOP supporters to overcome the 60-vote filibuster threshold within the evenly split Senate. Given that reality, House Republicans say McConnell has the power to stop the deal. And of course he does. But rather than stopping the deal, he's going to go ahead and find 10 Senate votes for the regime. 10 Senate Republicans, maybe a couple of more, will jump on board because Mitch McConnell has said, you are going to vote for this. You are going to vote for this. You are going to vote for this. And the way he's going to do it is he'll grab all the senators who are leaving office. This is the end of their Senate term, the end of their career. They're going to move on into the private sector, which means that they will just become another part of the government money laundering and corruption operation in Washington, D.C., but they won't have to face reelection from Republican voters so they can give their votes to the communists. And then he'll find a few more who aren't going to be up for election in 2024. They're going to be up for election in 2026 or maybe later, and they will jump on board as well. And then, of course, you have people like Mitt Romney and Susan Collins who go along with this stuff all the time. Absolutely nothing is expected from them. They know that their seats are secure due to stolen elections and due to the political power of their organizations within their states. So they have no problem voting for the regime communists whenever they are asked to. I mean, Mitt Romney put on a mask and marched with Black Lives Matter. There is nothing the communist regime does that Mitt Romney will not support. In fact, he's trying to make it so that they can't even go after Hunter Biden. Mitt Romney is running cover for the Bidens. And of course, the mainstream media calls him a good Republican and Mitch McConnell is happy to have him there to use his vote however the regime needs it. Senate Republicans must use every tool at their disposal to stop the Democrats' last-ditch spending blowout, said Representative Chip Roy of Texas. McConnell has rebuffed such calls. The GOP leader argues that with Democrats in control of Congress and the White House, Republicans were limited in what they could do. We're on defense, said McConnell. We're dealing with the cards we were dealt. McConnell also argued that despite not being in the majority, Republicans were able to exert influence over the budget. Democrats initially wanted to boost domestic spending over defense, but were forced to back down due to GOP opposition. The final deal is set to appropriate more than $858 billion for defense spending, a 10% increase. It also includes $787 billion in domestic spending and additional aid for Ukraine, something that both Democrat communists and Republican communists, you know, Obamis and Romneys, are all happy to get on board with. Given the fact Democrats have the presidency, the House and the Senate to meet our defense number and to not pay any bonus to the Democrats on the domestic side is far and away the best we could do, given the fact that we don't control the floor or the government. That is a blatant lie. He could simply wait two weeks and get a far better deal with the new Congress. But he doesn't want a far better deal. He wants to get the deal done now because that's what he's been commanded to do. 
McConnell's allies within the Senate note that House Republicans are willing to risk a government shutdown in exchange for an uncertain shot at a better deal next year. How would they get a worse deal? By what mechanism would the deal get any worse next year? And why are we pretending that a government shutdown is some sort of disaster? This is how this has all been framed for us by both sides of the regime establishment. The Democrats and the Republicans in the establishment all agree that we can't have government shutdowns, even though government shutdowns are probably the best method immediately available of cleaning up so many of the problems. And again, they could simply pass a continuing resolution and they could pass another continuing resolution after that. They don't actually need to fund the government and all of the current Congress's priorities through next September. The new Congress should be deciding that. But Mitch McConnell pretends that's not how it is. This is the best we could do, he said. The regime is getting everything it wants and Mitch McConnell goes out and tells the public that it's actually a really good deal because we get to increase defense spending. They also note that House Republicans will only hold a narrow majority next Congress with hardline conservatives eager to shut down the government over policy differences and impeach Biden appointees. Yes, exactly what the voters want. We've been here before during the Tea Party era, said a Senate Republican aide. The House will grumble about being left out, but they haven't proven themselves as capable of governing either. Isn't that astounding? The GOP establishment in the Senate and even their aides believe that somehow House Republicans who were elected, right? Fraudulent elections. I get it. There should be many, many more of them. And probably some of the ones who were elected should not have been, should not have probably won their primaries either. All right. I understand all that. But let's say that they were elected. They were elected to stop stuff like this from happening. They don't have to pass a can we govern according to the regime test in order to govern. That's what the elections are for. They were elected to go do that job and represent their constituents. They're not there to go be the people that rubber stamp and sign off on everything the regime wants. And this is the sort of thing they simply say casually and everyone just accepts it. Oh, yeah, we know those MAGA people, all those conspiracy theorists and QAnons in government now. Oh, they're just they're just not capable of governing. You see, in the Senate here, we have the adults in the room and in the House, the adults just went out of the room. And so we can't trust them to govern. So we need to go ahead and do all of this stuff. We need to be the adults in the room and we need to show those kids what's what we're going to take their government away from them because they're just not capable of governing. They haven't they haven't proved they're capable of governing yet, even though they were just elected. This is really where we are. This is an absolutely sad state of affairs. And the Senate Republicans, the establishment Senate Republicans are among the weakest and most malicious little traitors our country has ever seen. This is unbelievable. So let's get into Twitter files part five. And I know there are some people out there who think that everything that's dropping in these Twitter files to us is old news 
therefore making it old news and therefore not warranting the time that myself and others are spending on it. I don't agree with that at all. I understand that it is old news, but that old news being revealed to the public at large and bypassing the mainstream media, that's the event. That's the significance of this, and that's why it matters. It's also important to know what's in the Twitter files so that when you are in conversation or debate with someone who's just finding all of this out for the first time, you have the proper frame of reference. You know what information they're now receiving and you know how to help them frame it. That's why this stuff is valuable and why I'm going to continue to devote significant time to it. This is a major deal, even though it is not specifically directed toward us. It's not meant to inform us about what's going on. It's not meant to convince us that there was censorship or that there was a coordinated effort between the deep state as it's infiltrated our federal agencies and the legacy social media platforms. Yes, we already know that. But it turns out that there is a segment of people, even among those who are still ostensibly on the other side and could be viewed as enemies, who may well be prepared to stop fighting so hard for such an evil cause after finding out that the cause really is as evil as all the no-no people have been saying. These same people are also truly susceptible to public pressure because their entire lives are basically about managing their self-image and their public image in relation to their peers. So when they know that people, everyone knows this new information and everyone is talking about the new information, they are forced to adjust what they say and they think to correspond to the new reality. And it doesn't really matter in an important sense whether they're doing it out of principle based on new information and actually changing their mind or if they're just doing it out of self-preservation and shifting to a new position so that they don't embarrass themselves. Either way works for us. So let's get into it. The Twitter Files Part 5. This is Barry Weiss reporting. The removal of Trump from Twitter. On the morning of January 8th, President Donald Trump, with one remaining strike before being at risk of permanent suspension from Twitter, tweets twice, 6.46 a.m. The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. That tweet had 507,000 likes. The second tweet, 7.44 a.m. To all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. That had nearly 610,000 likes. And remember the freakout about that when Donald Trump said he wouldn't be going to the inauguration. That was him to the regime. That was Donald Trump saying, I'm not playing along with your show, with this farce, with this obviously fake inauguration where significant elements of the inauguration simply didn't happen. They also didn't have any crowd there. They had like 200, 
Washington officials and some celebrities and performers socially distanced from one another, sitting in the freezing cold, we're told, where the most memorable images were Lady Gaga looking like she had just sprung forth from the Hunger Games movies and Bernie Sanders sitting cross-legged in a parka with mittens on. And oh yeah, there was that thing about how they didn't do the proper gun salute for Biden and also the thing about how the National Guard lined the streets and turned their backs to his motorcade. For years, Twitter had resisted calls both internal and external to ban Trump on the grounds that blocking a world leader from the platform or removing their controversial tweets would hide important information that people should be able to see and debate. Our mission is to provide a forum that enables people to be informed and to engage their leaders directly, the company wrote in 2019. Twitter's aim was to, quote, protect the public's right to hear from their leaders and to hold them to account. But after January 6th, as Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger have documented, pressure grew both inside and outside of Twitter to ban Trump. There were dissenters inside Twitter. And she attaches a screenshot of a conversation between some Twitter employees whose names and photos are redacted. Maybe because I am from China, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. The response, I understand this fear, but I also think it's important to understand that censorship by a government is very different than censorship of the government. The First Amendment in the U.S. and similar legislation in other countries with similar concepts exists specifically to prevent the government from silencing people. Another responds, I respect that, but realistically, we impose far stricter rules on effectively everyone else on the platform. And finally, we started labeling and restricting his tweets when they became a threat to democracy, democracy with a capital D, and seemed like that was our red line. Yesterday, he clearly attempted to overthrow our democratic system of government and showed no signs of remorse. If this is not a clear reason to suspend him again as an unhinged ruler attempting to subvert the most powerful democracy in the world, I'm not sure what would be shrug. Now, it goes without saying that these people are crazy. They are working with the government to censor and all of them know that. They're saying now, even beyond the private company conversation or any of that, they're saying that it is okay to censor the government. And they're not, of course, going to censor the whole government. They're just going to censor Donald Trump. And the justification will be that it's okay because it's not the government censoring the people, although they're happy to do that too, even though they recognize they're not supposed to, as recognized in this very message. It's the government and legacy social media censoring a part of the government. And that's not what the First Amendment is there to protect. Everybody knows that. Besides, you have to protect our democracy. That, above all else, is what we must protect. The system of government. And in fact, not the system of government. Just the government in place, the regime, the establishment, we must protect them at all costs, even if it means stomping all over the rights of the citizens and the members of that government who are themselves citizens. But back to Barry Weiss. 
But voices like that one appear to have been a distinct minority within the company. And she's talking about the voice of the employee mentioning China and how the censorship regime can actually destroy the public conversation and eventually destroy society. Across Slack channels, many Twitter employees were upset that Trump hadn't been banned earlier. After January 6th, Twitter employees organized to demand their employer ban Trump. There is a lot of employee advocacy happening, said one Twitter employee. We have to do the right thing and ban this account, said one staffer. It's pretty obvious he's going to try to thread the needle of incitement without violating the rules, said another. In the early afternoon of January 8th, the Washington Post published an open letter signed by over 300 Twitter employees to CEO Jack Dorsey demanding Trump's ban. We must examine Twitter's complicity in what President-elect Biden has rightly termed insurrection. So not only are Twitter employees putting pressure on the organization internally, they actually go to the media with their signed open letter. Oh, so many of them are on board with this. And then the media blasted out to the public. Even Twitter employees know that Twitter has to ban Trump, like we've been saying, like everyone in the regime has been saying, like Michelle Obama has been saying. They're attempting to get the public's consent for doing something that is so obviously and blatantly wrong and destructive. Again, they're talking about censoring the duly elected sitting president of the United States of America. And they're doing it because President-elect Biden has rightly said this was an insurrection. Come on, man. But the Twitter staff assigned to evaluate tweets quickly concluded that Trump had not violated Twitter's policies. I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement, wrote one staffer. It's pretty clear he's saying the American patriots are the ones who voted for him and not the terrorists. We can call them that, right? From Wednesday. Another staffer agreed. Don't see the incitement angle here. I am also not seeing clear or coded incitement in the DJT tweet, wrote Annika Navaroli, a Twitter policy official. I'll respond in the elections channel and say that our team has assessed and found no vios or violations for the DJT one. It's Donald J. Trump, of course. And again, let's look at these tweets. These are the tweets that they're discussing. This is what they're going to ban the president for. The 75 million great American patriots who voted for me, America first and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. The other one to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. There is absolutely nothing in either of those tweets that any reasonable person could possibly deem to be incitement. So Navaroli does address this in the elections channel. Barry Weiss writes, she does just that. As an FYI, safety has assessed the DJT tweet above and determined that there is no violation of our policies at this time. Later, Navaroli would testify to the House January 6th committee, quote, for months, I had been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. So is she lying to Congress 
Has she simply gone insane since January 6th? And who exactly was going to die? No one did die on January 6th, except for Trump supporters at the hands of the Capitol Police. It is an out and out lie that Capitol Police were killed by protesters or rioters or insurrectionists. That simply didn't happen, even though people still believe that it did. Why do they still believe it? Well, because their public elected officials continue to say it. And even the very, very legitimate January 6th committee continues to say and imply it. But it's not true now, and it never has been true. Next, Twitter's safety team decides that Trump's 744 a.m. Eastern tweet is also not in violation. They are unequivocal. It's a clear no vio. It's just to say he's not attending the inauguration. To understand Twitter's decision to ban Trump, we must consider how Twitter deals with other heads of state and political leaders, including Iran, Nigeria, and Ethiopia. In June 2018, Iran's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei tweeted, Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. Twitter neither deleted the tweet nor banned the Ayatollah. In October 2020, the former Malaysian prime minister said it was, quote, a right for Muslims to, quote, kill millions of French people. Twitter deleted his tweet for glorifying violence, but he remains on the platform. And Weiss attaches the tweet that is archived by the Wayback Machine. Muhammadu Buhari, the president of Nigeria, incited violence against pro-Biafra groups. Those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war, he wrote, will treat them in the language they understand. Twitter deleted the tweet but didn't ban Buhari. In October 2021, Twitter allowed Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to call on citizens to take up arms against the Tigray region. Twitter allowed the tweet to remain up and did not ban the prime minister. In February 2021, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government threatened to arrest Twitter employees in India and to incarcerate them for up to seven years after they restored hundreds of accounts that had been critical of him. Twitter did not ban Modi. But Twitter executives did ban Trump, even though key staffers said that Trump had not incited violence, not even in a coded way. Less than 90 minutes after Twitter employees had determined that Trump's tweets were not in violation of Twitter policy, Vidya Gotti, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, asked whether it could, in fact, be coded incitement to further violence. And she attaches the conversation from Slack. Vidya Gotti says, thanks. The biggest question is whether a tweet like the one this morning from Trump, which isn't a rule violation on its face, is being used as coded incitement to further violence. If you have any context or insight, we should consider I'm all ears, e.g. the use of the term American patriots, and they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. So the phrase American patriots and the sentence, they will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape or form. Those are questionable according to Vidya Gotti, as potentially incitement to violence. She's not clear on it. Maybe if you just add some more context, give this a little polish and show me 
how this could be incitement to violence, and then I will accept your explanation. A redacted employee responds to Gotti. This is an interesting question. I'm going to speak with my team ASAP to see if we can run a quick survey to get reactions to the language contained in the tweet and get back to you. So basically, they just go consult the other little communists at Twitter and they see if they can't find among those little communists a suitable justification for what they have already determined they are going to do. Gotti writes back, I'm not sure I would rely on a survey. I worry about how that would be perceived externally. And she follows up, wondering if we have anything in past research that could be relevant. So they need to go to one of the studies that they've already prepared to justify something else they couldn't do according to their rules, but needed to do. So once again, found an ad hoc justification for. A few minutes later, Twitter employees on the scaled enforcement team suggested that Trump's tweet may have violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy. If you interpreted the phrase American patriots to refer to the rioters, here is the conversation team scale is asking if we would consider Trump's tweet for glorification of violence. If we consider American patriots to refer to the rioters, they have a point from my POV team. My laptop is frozen. We'll rejoin ASAP. Scale has said they understand our position, but will continue to push their glorification of violence assessment with leadership. They see it that, quote, he is the leader of a violent extremist group who is glorifying the group and its recent actions. Do you think we should square off glorification of violence in the DJT assessment or would it be helpful at this point? I think it could be helpful to maybe have a write up of what VIO assessment could look like, just in case scale tips the balance and that becomes the decision. So now Twitter's very, very competent and expert executives are having a discussion about whether or not they can get away with justifying the banning of the duly elected sitting president based on their ability their credibility in assessing that the term American patriots used in reference to the 75 million people who voted for Donald Trump could instead just simply be seen as rioters. So now American patriots who voted for Donald Trump just means rioters. And if it does mean rioters, if we can get away with saying that, well, then we can say that the whole thing is glorification of violence. This is a serious conversation being held by what we assume are adults who are credentialed experts and educated at what we're told are the best institutions in this country and around the world. These are the best and brightest people in big tech. And their conversation is about whether or not they can get away with saying the phrase American patriots glorifies violence, utterly Orwellian. Things escalate from there. Members of that team came to, quote, view him as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence and deaths comparable to the Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis, and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. 
Now, think back to the Christchurch shooter incident. What did they blame it on? They blamed it on discussions, extremist discussions on 4chan and 8chan. Now, why would they have wanted to shut down 4chan and 8chan? Oh, man, it's because people could speak anonymously and openly without being censored. And also, that's where Q was. So the Christchurch shooting was actually used to push the censorship agenda. And this message, the full message that she just kind of excerpted is interesting. So I'm going to read it to you. Just to update, name redacted, I spoke to name redacted just now. Now, the first name redacted and the construction of this sentence, it sounds like a person and, right? So just saying a person's name and then I spoke doesn't make sense. But if you said, for instance, Jim Baker and I spoke to just now, That is a properly constructed sentence and one that would be more likely to be written. So you have to think two people spoke to one person. Now, who's the one person? It's a very short redaction. Maybe it's Jack, but it certainly could be someone else. And then they said they understand our assessment of this individual tweet, but they now view him as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence and deaths comparable to the Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. They will continue to push that argument with leadership and we will see where it falls. Now, this is more than one person and it probably isn't Jack, even though that redaction could be right. Jack is not a they. But who is a they? Who is a they with a short redaction who could be the sort of they involved in Twitter's censorship? Who would be specifically comparing Donald Trump to the Christchurch shooter and Hitler? Well, the most likely and most obvious answer is the ADL, who we know is currently involved in trying to get Twitter to censor. They were part of the organization pushing for advertisers to leave and for Elon Musk to abide by all their commands on censorship. Now, I certainly don't know it's them, but it absolutely could be, or it could be someone from the administration. It could be the FBI. It could be DHS. In fact, with the rhythm of the sentence, maybe DHS is even the more likely option. For instance, if this said, Vidya and I spoke to DHS just now, they understand our assessment, that reads perfectly clearly. So it's something along those lines. And there must be some significant reason why Barry Weiss redacted these names. Two hours later, Twitter executives host a 30-minute all-staff meeting. Jack Dorsey and Vidya Gotti answer staff questions as to why Trump wasn't banned yet, but they make some employees angrier. Multiple tweets, Twitter employees, have quoted the banality of evil, suggesting that people implementing our policies are like Nazis following orders, relays Yoel Roth to a colleague. I'm not sure who should hear this, but if you look at the conversation in one of the Slack channels, Plenty of employees are not responding well to the 30-minute brief. I feel people want to be heard and having someone with the right purview to reason with, and yet I am sure Jack and Vidya are totally saturated. 
I wonder if we can mobilize people who are on the peripheral of decision making, but not all consumed to engage with internal discussions. And Yoel Roth responds. Yeah, I've been keeping an eye on it. Candidly, not a lot of people who are close to the decisions would feel safe engaging there. Multiple tweets have quoted the banality of evil, suggesting that people implementing our policies are like Nazis following orders, which, as someone responsible for our policies who had direct family members in Auschwitz, is not exactly an environment I want to wade into. People are angry and want to express themselves, but the way the conversation happens can close off meaningful engagement. These people are robots, absolutely bloodless. It is always amazing to me how lacking all of them are in any discernible individual personality of any kind. Dorsey requested simpler language to help explain Trump's suspension. Roth wrote, God help us. This makes me think he wants to share it publicly. A redacted employee writes, if we get close to suspension and an analysis of 8chan or parlor is part of the decision, any links to that content would be helpful for us with trusted. If possible, I'd like those services to pay a price here. Yoel Roth responds. Yep. Noted. Dell is rewriting the doc per request from Jack to make it simpler, which God help us makes me think he wants to share it publicly. So Jack is going to share the conclusion they come to. And Yoel Roth is concerned about that. But it's odd that Barry Weiss didn't focus on the earlier part of this, the 8chan and parlor discussion. Now, what they have traditionally done in all of these takedown attempts and all of these censorship attempts is go onto these other platforms and find accounts of almost exclusively anonymous users. And then they find the worst things, the things that always support their agenda, and they portray those posts to the public as representative of the environment on those platforms, which then is used to say these platforms are very scary. They're very racist. They're very misogynistic, very homophobic and blah, 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 blah. And that makes them very, very dangerous. And inside Twitter, the employees are saying, I'd like those services to pay a price here. And if you think that the people we're dealing with, the regime we're dealing with, the law enforcement and intel elements of that regime, and even just your standard run-of-the-mill brain-dead communist, wouldn't create fake accounts on platforms to write violent things and stoke violence, you need to think a little more about that. Because I used to hear that central narrative element. I used to hear the stories about how these platforms are very dangerous and racist and promoted violence and all that. And I was just like, yeah, whatever. I don't go on those platforms. I don't really care. I'll just accept the media's word for it. Well, once I got banned off legacy social media platforms and was exclusively on other alternative platforms, I came to find out that that is not what the conversations on alternative platforms are like at all. You barely see any of it. If you see any of it at all, it's usually part of a joke or pretty obviously someone who is there to infiltrate and pretend to be something they are not. And you can tell by the language cues. They don't really understand how people in those spaces talk and they don't understand what acceptable conversation in those spaces is 
They don't understand what the people in those spaces actually believe. So it's impossible for them to take on the personality and the role and the voice of people who would actually be using those platforms. It doesn't sound authentic at all. It becomes really obvious and they focus specifically on things that lead to violence. And that's where the term glowy came from, because those people are glowing. They are pretty obviously feds. One hour later, Twitter announces Trump's permanent suspension due to the risk of further incitement to violence. Many at Twitter were ecstatic and she attaches some of the reactions Redacted names, of course, naturally. Team DJT is suspended with exclamation points. OMG in capital letters. One with like 15 exclamation points. Ah, exclamation points. More exclamation points. Well, this feels like a piece of history. It is in capital letters. Saw the message. Thank you, everyone, for your impactful work this week, for the discussion and for drafting all these complex assessments. I'm very proud to work and learn from you every day, wishing you a good weekend. And that is such dumb and useless millennial corporate lingo. But this is embarrassing. They think they're making history. They basically just think they've won the Super Bowl of the Internet by suspending a duly elected sitting president of the United States of America. This to them is good because they were able to justify the suspension on using the words American patriots to claim that Donald Trump was glorifying violence and congratulatory quote, big props to whoever in trust and safety is sitting there whack-a-moling these Trump accounts. They are all extremely proud of themselves. By the next day, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible. So they just moved right on. Now that they have the power to ban the duly elected sitting president of the United States of America, well, they can censor anything. And what do they need to censor the most? Well, COVID misinformation. I mean, how are we going to do a proper forced vaccination on the entire population, including tiny little babies with this experimental gene therapy. If we can't censor anything that says the experimental gene therapy is killing people, the attached message from another redacted employee reads, yes, we absolutely plan to do this in 2021 with the timeline being as soon as possible. COVID is one specific disease. Medical misinformation is a much broader category of harmful content. We've laid a lot of the groundwork for policy and product behavior through our work on COVID and the election. The misinfo policy team in TNS, along with the folks in health experience, TWS research and other teams across the company are now focused on getting to a place of improved maturity in how our policies are actualized across reporting operations, global scale, scope, etc. We'll have more to share on this soon. So it's not just COVID, it's medical misinformation broadly. So basically, they are going to make it so that anything the science says can be the only thing said about the science on Twitter. Another attached screenshot from the Slack conversation. Very excited to see us handling more categories of misinformation. For the longest time, Twitter's stance was that we aren't the arbiter of truth which I respected, but never gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. 
That said, my dad is an MD to give context and medical misinformation is a really hard topic. Even for COVID-19, we only covered a narrow category of information. As an example is take vitamin C, vitamin D, elderberry and xylitol with GSE daily to reduce COVID-19 risk. Good information, creative marketing or misinformation. Personally, I'm not sure, and I suspect there are views on both sides. So this person is at least semi-rational, but is still concerned about getting warm, fuzzy feelings from Twitter's censorship policy. But Twitter's COO, Parag Agrawal, who would later succeed Dorsey as CEO, told head of security Peter Mudge Zatko, I think a few of us should brainstorm the ripple effects of Trump's ban. Agrawal added, Centralized content moderation, in my opinion, has reached a breaking point now. Here's the conversation, starting with Agrawal. I think a few of us should brainstorm the ripple effects and potential fragmentation of public conversation and how we might adapt. Zatko responded, who are you suggesting? Agrawal wrote, not sure, a few of us on staff, maybe to start. The future of public conversation feels uncertain to me. To my mind, we need to move fast toward opening up control over policies and enforcement and decentralizing it. Centralized content moderation, in my opinion, has reached a breaking point now. And that, it seems to me, is a pretty damning admission. The conversation goes on, another name redacted. Interested to hear what people think now that it's played out the way it has. Agrawal responds, I think the more important question now is the future of public conversation. In my mind, this is the end of the road for centralized content moderation. Hard to believe that this approach will be sustainable moving forward. Suggested to Mudge that a few of us get together to anticipate ripple effects and decide on how we want to mobilize for the change ahead. So throughout this process, what we have is a team of people at Twitter working with various elements of government agencies in choosing what must be censored. And once they determine the things that must be censored, then they determine the reasons on which they can justify the censorship, eventually getting all the way up to banning the president of the United States of America. And that was after banning stories about the Hunter Biden laptop that could have affected the election outcome, as well as obviously the view about the illegitimate president. They censored information about the election and about election fraud. And now they've banned the president by reinterpreting his words, taking them out of context and reinterpreting them to claim that he is glorifying violence. And that's what they went out and told the public and the media helped them spread that story to the public and child brained communists simply believed that Donald Trump was glorifying violence, but nothing he said glorified violence. He asked people to peacefully and patriotically march to the Capitol and make their voices heard. He asked them to go home in peace and love. And all of that was censored. And so what did they do? They went and took the term American patriots and said that he was referring to rioters and glorifying violence. And even Parag Agarwal, by this point, realizes that we have reached the end of the road for centralized content moderation. Could be because all of the liability for all of this 
is now on them. But who knows if he was thinking that far out? Maybe they just thought they got away with it because the fake president, Joe Biden, got illegitimately into the White House somehow, maybe. And Twitter employees and executives, people related to Twitter, passed back and forth between the Obama administration, the fake Biden administration and Twitter. They even sent Peter Mudge Zatko out there as a whistleblower for a limited hangout operation. Maybe they thought they were going to get away with it all. And because they are generally protected and promoted, their lives are made better every time they do what the regime asks of them. They probably eventually feel that they're untouchable. The most powerful people in the world continue to elevate us. There is no way that we can get in trouble like the common man would. Outside the United States, Twitter's decision to ban Trump raised alarms, including with French President Emmanuel Macron, German Prime Minister Angela Merkel, and Mexico's President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Macron told an audience that he didn't, quote, want to live in a democracy where the key decisions, end quote, were made by private players. I want it to be decided by a law voted by your representative or by regulation, governance, democratically discussed and approved by Democratic leaders. So long as those Democratic leaders are sitting in office as the product of regime approved election theft, then it's OK. Then they're making the decisions and the people have to pretend that it was them who made the decision. Well, the people voted for this. This must be what the people wanted. Merkel's spokesperson called Twitter's decision to ban Trump from its platform problematic and added that the freedom of opinion is of elementary significance. Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny criticized the ban as an unacceptable act of censorship. Now, none of these regime global communists actually care about this. They are all on the same side as the Twitter board and the fake Biden administration and the rest of it. But they put these statements out so that they can take their hands off it. Oh, that's very wrong. We would never do that in our countries. I mean, just wait until we do do it. But we would never do it. We are principally opposed to this, which is how you know that while it's happening, it's just happening and it's not their fault because they oppose it. Now, I have no idea why Alexei Navalny is taken seriously in any way. He is not an opposition leader, no matter how many HBO documentaries come out saying he is, no matter how many times people accuse Putin of poisoning him. Putin's approval ratings are like 85% in Russia. There is no opposition there. They just want to promote this guy in the West so that we believe there is, so that if they have the opportunity to change regimes by force, they can put Navalny in and everybody will think he's a hero, like the comedic actor Volodymyr Zelensky. Whether you agree with Navalny and Macron or the executives at Twitter, we hope this latest installment of the Twitter files gave you insight into that unprecedented decision. From the outset, our goal in investigating this story was to discover and document the steps leading up to the ban of Trump and to put that choice into context. Ultimately, the concerns about Twitter's efforts to censor news about Hunter Biden's laptop, blacklist disfavored views and ban a president aren't about the past choices of executives in a social media company. They're about the power of a handful of people at a private company to influence the public discourse and democracy. And so Barry Weiss is essentially showing her cards at this point. Twitter is not a private company and was not acting as a private company. 
They were acting as an agent of the state. And what they did was a violation of the Constitution. But Barry Weiss, nonetheless, feels the need to confirm the central narrative within her reporting. And they're influencing the public discourse and democracy. No, they're controlling the public discourse and eliminating for their purposes democracy. Over and over, you see them pointing out the reasons why they can't do the things they're doing if they want to continue to claim a certain set of underlying principles. They also make it clear that they understand that people won't like the reasons why they're doing these things, which is why they continue to create more new reasons that people might accept. And think about this for a minute. As we wrap up the show, they talk quite a lot about how they're going to pass these questions off to research and their research teams are going to study the issues and provide them with answers. I wonder if what their research teams are doing is seeding different sorts of messaging out to different large accounts. Like one idea goes to Rob Reiner and another one goes to Bette Midler. And another one goes to Kathy Griffin and another one goes to LeBron James, right? All different messages being pushed out to the public by these celebrity influencers at the behest of Twitter or the regime. Who knows where they get the messaging from? The messaging goes out there. Twitter gets to then gauge reactions and gauge the responses to those different messages. They're basically doing A-B testing, seeing what works and what doesn't. And then when they find one that works, they say, hey, people are really responding to this. People think that this message is acceptable. You would have to imagine that this is some part of their process. And they likely hold the belief that once they find messaging that achieves a positive enough response, then they can feel free to go forward with that messaging. Imagine how you would be able to manipulate the public if you had the ability to control public thought and public conversation all the time. You see, Twitter executives know how powerful the information weapon is, and they did not hesitate to use it. In fact, they used it at the behest of these government agencies, the corrupt elements of the deep state. They're not concerned with doing the right thing or even following their own policies or even the laws of the nation. They only care about finding suitable explanations for the public to justify what is obviously the most blatant, overt and oppressive censorship operation since Nazi Germany and Mao's China. And they do all of this between getting lattes and taking naps at work. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. 
The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree. Linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!